Hey everyone, and welcome to Off the Record, a show where we talk candidly on practical advice and provide insight on issues across the criminal law landscape. As counsel for the defense, we speak from a position of authority, giving you, our audience, the expert knowledge that you deserve. You'll hear from a variety of hosts with their unique experiences for our discussions, giving you the opportunity to learn something new and with a different point of view. Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Off the Record. My name is Shannon Lees. I'm the managing attorney of Imhoff & Associates and your host for today. Today's show, we are discussing Miranda warnings. We'll discuss the origination, substance, subsequent decisions, and the future of Miranda. Let's get into it. Chances are you are already familiar with the warnings, whether you knew they were called Miranda warnings or where they come from. If you've ever watched an episode of Cops, seen a TV show or movie where someone is getting arrested, or perhaps life circumstances have given you firsthand experience, you've heard Miranda warnings. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used in a court of law. You have the right to a lawyer and have him present with you while you are being questioned. If you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you before any questioning if you wish. You can decide at any time to exercise these rights and not answer any questions or make any statements. Do you understand each of these rights I have explained to you? Having these rights in mind, do you wish to talk to us now? These warnings have become part of our national culture over the past 50 years. Essentially, they're advising of the rights under the Fifth and Sixth Amendments to the Constitution, right to not incriminate yourself, and the right to have an attorney. It is not required that the officer recite these warnings exactly. There are no magic words required, as long as the essence is conveyed. So where do these warnings come from? They originate from a Supreme Court opinion in 1966, Arizona v. Miranda. This was a decision by the Warren Court during the time of the Civil Rights Movement. The court was concerned about the inherently coercive nature of police interrogations. In the opinion, Chief Justice Warren detailed the long history of police using physical and psychological coercion to persuade or trick a suspect from exercising their constitutional rights and noted that people were sometimes even physically tortured during interrogations. Warren also noted, even for those who are aware of their rights, that people were often prevented from asserting them due to the power imbalance between police and suspects. Essentially, the court wanted to ensure that suspects were not stripped of their ability to make a free, and rational choice whether they wanted to give a statement and hope to provide a more level playing field. To achieve this, the court held that the prosecution may not use any statements obtained during a custodial interrogation unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards, a.k.a. Miranda warnings. Now, the dissents in this case were strong and they were ominous. They warned that the decision would embolden criminals and prevent police from making arrests, leaving dangerous people in the community. Justice Harlan II said the court was taking a real risk with society's welfare in imposing its new regime on the country and said the societal costs of crime are too great to call the new rules anything but a hazardous experimentation. Now, the Warren Court is considered to be the most progressive in U.S. history protecting and expanding civil rights and civil liberties. Miranda was one of several groundbreaking decisions aimed at protecting the rights of the accused handed down by the Warren Court that fundamentally changed criminal procedure. 
The same month that Miranda was decided, Gideon v. Wainwright was decided, which sought to provide equal justice by requiring the government to provide lawyers to criminal defendants who could not afford one. When must these warnings be provided? Two things are necessary to trigger Miranda warnings. Suspect must be in custody and subject to interrogation. Custody is any restraint on freedom of movement to a degree associated with a formal arrest. So an arrest certainly qualifies, but it's not required. This is a fact-based assessment based on a reasonable person in the suspect's position. In other words, a savvy attorney has the opportunity to present arguments to convince a judge why their client was in, in custody despite them not being under arrest. Now, although it might feel like it, a traffic stop is not considered custody. Police are not required to provide Miranda warnings for an investigative stop. And although these warnings are not required, that does not mean anything you say can't be used against you because it certainly will. So be mindful of your mouth when the officer is asking questions. Assume everything you do and say is being recorded and will be used against you. And so our second factor, what is an interrogation? Certainly express questioning satisfies this, but also its functional equivalent. Any words or actions on the part of the police that the police should know are reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response. Now, what does that mean? Again, a savvy lawyer has an opportunity to convince a judge that the circumstances constitute questioning and Miranda was required. All right, so there we have it. A person in custody who is interrogated without Miranda cannot have their statements used against them in court. Simple, right? Unfortunately, this landmark decision has been under attack since it was decided and has been repeatedly undermined by subsequent decisions. For decades, the court has chipped away at the safeguards provided by Miranda, carving out exceptions and creating rules that limit its practical effect. Now, while Miranda remains settled law, the effect of these subsequent decisions prevents Miranda from protecting people from police abuse, especially members of marginalized communities, as it was intended to do. Let's talk about some of these cases. In 1971, the court decided Harris v. New York and held that while prosecutors could not use an illegally obtained confession as evidence of guilt, they could, however, use it to discredit a defendant's testimony. So statements obtained in violation of Miranda can be used for impeachment. If you're interrogated in custody without Miranda warnings and make a statement, then testify at trial and give contradictory testimony, the prosecutor can use your statement to impeach the testimony. The court reasoned that the shield provided by Miranda cannot be perverted into a license to use perjury by way of defense. And in 1980, we have Rhode Island v. Innes. Here, the court clarified the meaning of interrogation, and this is going to sound familiar to you. Innes was arrested for robbery, given Miranda warnings, and he asked to speak with a lawyer. In the police car on the way to the station, three of the officers discussed the missing shotgun that was used in the robbery. One officer mentioned the proximity of the crime scene to a school with disabled students and said, God forbid, one of them finds the gun and injures themselves. Innes was overcome interrupted them, and led them to the gun. The court held that interrogation includes actions which are reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response from the suspect. So, Innes wins, right? Nope. The court found that the officers weren't aware Innes was unusually susceptible to concerns of disabled children, so the police couldn't possibly know he would be compelled to talk. How could these officers know of Innes's 
susceptibility to worrying a disabled child might blow its brains out. This is a situation I would think we could assume anyone who's not a psychopath is susceptible to caring about. The violent killing of children, let alone disabled children. But no, not enough for this court. I suppose it's conceivable he's a psychopath who wouldn't be bothered. Okay. In 1984, the court decided New York v. Quarles and created the rule that Miranda is not required in circumstances necessary for public safety. This gives us what's known as the public safety exception. Quarles was a suspect in an assault who was stopped and frisked by an officer who noticed that he had an empty shoulder holster. The officer asked where his gun was, and Quarles told him. The court held that Miranda didn't apply in this situation, since the officer's request for the location of the gun was prompted by an interest to protect the safety of the public. So this exception you'll most often see in circumstances involving guns or weapons. Next, we have Colorado v. Connolly. This is a decision from 1986. Here, the court found that a knowing, intelligent, and voluntary waiver of Miranda rights only means that the suspect reasonably appears to understand. When Connolly approached an officer to talk about a murder he committed, he waived his rights, signed a waiver, but was found mentally incompetent to stand trial. The court held that the confession should not have been suppressed, and in doing so, it changed the voluntariness standard previously used to determine the admissibility of confessions. It is now irrelevant whether a suspect was cognitively or mentally impaired at the time they waived their rights as long as police coercion is not involved. It is irrelevant whether a suspect is mentally capable of waiving their constitutional rights. Hoo boy! All right, next up, Illinois v. Perkins, 1990. This is a case that created what's known as the jailhouse informant exception. Essentially, the police can bypass the Miranda requirement by putting an undercover officer in the jail to obtain a statement from a suspect. Any confessions obtained from an undercover agent or a jailhouse informant does not violate Miranda. This is even if they are paid agents of the government. The court reasoned that since there's no police-dominated atmosphere, there's no coercion, Miranda isn't necessary. Now, this was an 8-to-1 opinion, despite the dirty tactics employed and the vulnerability created by the jail environment. Marilyn v. Schatzer, 2010. Court held that police can resume questioning of a suspect who previously invoked their Miranda rights if there is a break in custody of 14 days. The court felt that this magic number gave a person time to get reacclimated to normal life following custody and to shake off any residual coercive effects of custody. It's so specific, you gotta love it. 14 days later, all better. Clearly, none of the justices have ever been to jail. I have clients who were never themselves again after jail. And apparently, the court feels that the jail experience is the exact same for everyone, regardless of their personal characteristics. No big deal. 14 days fixes it all. Burgess v. Tompkins is another decision from 2010. Here, the court held that the suspect waives their right to remain silent unless it is clearly invoked. Yes, you heard that correctly. To exercise your right to remain silent, you are required to speak. An ambiguous or equivocal statement or lack of statement does not mean that the police must end an interrogation. 
It must be asserted unambiguously. You cannot simply remain silent. Salinas v. Texas was decided three years later in 2013. This is another example of the principle that you can't remain silent to enjoy your right to remain silent. In Salinas, the court held that a person who isn't in custody, who doesn't answer an officer's questions, that that silence can be used against them unless they expressly invoke their Miranda rights, which, of course, they haven't been read yet since they aren't in custody to require them. So you need to invoke your right to remain silent in order to prevent your silence from being used against you, even though you haven't been provided warnings to know that you have that right. And therefore, the point of these cases, what this really makes here, is that no one should ever speak to law enforcement without a lawyer. Ever. They are not there to help you, despite what they might claim. They can lie to you. They can trick you. Do not speak to law enforcement without a lawyer. And this brings us to the court's most recent abomination, an attack on Miranda, Vega Vitico. Now, this is a case that was just decided in June of this year. If you subscribe to the Imhoff & Associates newsletter, you are already aware from the July edition, this decision seriously pisses me off. You'll likely be reminded today that I'm still pissed off. This opinion further weakens Miranda and frankly has very serious implications for the long-term viability of Miranda and criminal law. In Vega v. Tico, Defendant Tico was interrogated at his work and was not provided Miranda warnings. His statement was admitted at trial, but he was eventually acquitted of the charges. Tico subsequently sued Vega under Section 1983 for violating his civil rights, specifically for violating his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, since Vega obtained the confession without first providing Miranda warnings. Now, previously, the court has held that the purpose in 1983 is to deter state actors from using the badge of their authority to deprive individuals of their federally guaranteed rights and to provide relief to victims if such deterrence fails. Certainly seems to apply here. Vega used his authority as a police officer, deprived Tico of his right against self-incrimination, which could have been prevented had the Miranda warnings been provided. But the court disagreed and held that damages are not available under Section 1983 for a violation of Miranda because Miranda rights aren't constitutional rights. Miranda warnings are merely prophylactic. They're not explicit in the Constitution. Therefore, they are not themselves rights protected by the Constitution. Essentially, the court is saying that the rule that protects the rights, i.e. Miranda warnings, is not the same thing as the rule itself, i.e. the Fifth Amendment. It's semantic argumentation drawing a distinction between violating a right versus violating a rule protecting a right. But without protections for the right, do we even have the right in the first place? Because without these prophylactic rules protecting our rights, constitutional rights only exist in theory. Further, if there's no remedy for the right, how do we have a right in any meaningful sense? As Kagan writes in the dissent, the court in this case injures the right by denying the remedy. Let's talk about this dissent. Maybe it's just me, but I was really disappointed and let down. I appreciate the discussion of precedent and the arguments demonstrating how Alito's interpretation is wrong, that a violation of Miranda is not a deprivation of a right secured by the Constitution, 
but it simply fails to rise to the occasion. Maybe she had a long and tiring week. I can appreciate that. But that's what the Ivy League law clerks are for. Put them to work. We should be taking the opportunity to talk about the importance of Miranda and what's at stake. Even with the protections of Miranda warnings, false confessions of people proven factually innocent by DNA account for 29% of wrongful convictions. Miranda is important and necessary. It should be built upon and strengthened, not weakened. This decision eliminates any personal accountability for the unlawful conduct of officers, and it removes an important deterrent to not engage in the kind of conduct that Miranda sought to prevent. It's shameful. Given the court's decision in Vega, there is certainly reason to be concerned about the survival of Miranda in the future. The court is treating the protections for the right differently than the right itself. And if they are to be treated separately, we're not far from saying that these protections aren't required at all. If there is any question how Alito feels on this issue, footnote 5 clears it up. Although it wasn't necessary to address for the purpose of the decision, Alito questions whether the court has the authority to create prophylactic rules. He essentially invites a direct challenge to Miranda itself. We know from the dissent in Dickerson v. United States that Clarence Thomas also shares this view, referring to the ability of judges to create prophylactic rules as an immense and frightening anti-democratic power that does not exist. Now, certainly if the court lacks the authority to impose prophylactic rules, then other prophylactic rules, like the exclusionary rule from Map v. Ohio, is also subject to being overturned. And we need not wonder if this is a correct implication to draw, as Alito cites to an academic article that suggests overturning Map v. Ohio. So while we are stripping protections for the rights and remedies for the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, we could be adding the Fourth Amendment to this list as well. The implications of this cannot be understated. The exclusionary rule is the basis for the majority of pretrial litigation in criminal law. Overturning MAP would absolutely turn the practice of criminal law upside down. It's worth noting that MAP v. Ohio is also a Warren Court decision. So while a liberal court provided the protections for the constitutional rights of the accused, it appears that the recently reconstituted and most conservative court in history is hell-bent on destroying them. Time will tell. That brings us to the end of this episode of Off the Record. If you have any questions about Miranda, how it may apply in your case, give Imhoff & Associates a call. We are here to help. 800-887-0000. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Off the Record. Don't forget to share and also subscribe so you don't miss the next one. Want to ask a question on a future episode? We'd love to hear from you. So email us at offtherecordpodcast at criminalattorney.com. Follow us on Instagram at Imhoff Associates or 